All right. The uh, plan A for tonight was to survey uh, a plethora of New Testament passages that touch on the rapture. But I'm going to punt to plan B. We'll do the survey, Lord willing, next Wednesday. But tonight, after a brief review, I want to focus primarily on one New Testament passage that emphasizes the rapture and that also emphasizes the deity of Christ. So we'll talk about that uh, topic uh, tonight. And uh, let me just start here. You all know that the book of First Thessalonians has three parts. First, it talks about the salvation and early Christian experience of the Thessalonians. Let's call that salvation. Then it talks about the growing spiritual dynamics in the Thessalonians. Let's call that uh, sanctification. So we have salvation, sanctification. And now in the third and final major portion of the book of 1 Thessalonians, we have anticipation. So it's salvation, sanctification, anticipation. The anticipation about great things in the future for believers runs from 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through chapter 5, verse 11. And that unit breaks down into two parts. First, we have 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through 18, which talks about the rapture event, followed by 1 Thessalonians 5.1 through 11, which talks about tribulation, the tribulation which will follow the rapture on the earth and about our relationship to that and the fact that, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11, God's not destined us for the wrath of the tribulation, but for obtaining rescue through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is going to come back just before the tribulation breaks out on earth in the rapture event, that event will initiate the biblical end times, and it will involve the resurrection in place of living believers, and they're being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. When you translate caught up from Greek into Latin in about 400 A.D. and come up with the Vulgate translation, you use the verb rapturo, rapturo, and so we get the rapture from that statement in 1 Thess 4.13. But God has not destined us, church-age believers, for the orge, for the tribulation, but for obtaining rescue through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him in resurrection bodies, therefore encourage one another and build up one another. So let's say this about that. The rapture, let's just define it briefly. This is not a mega technical definition, but just make sure we're thinking about the same things. The rapture is the imminent. Could happen at any moment, might not happen for another thousand years. There's no date setting for it. There are no signs that will specifically point to it. Although I will say, as the geopolitical status of the world lines up to look tribulation-like, since the rapture takes place just before the tribulation will initiate. Uh, And we see a lot of bad players in the world stage getting or about to get nuclear weapons. Uh, It's it's very possible to me we're very close to the actual rapture event, but we're not setting dates. But let's, let's define it again. 
The rapture is the imminent appearing of Christ in the air. The second advent has him coming back to planet Earth. The rapture happens in the air. That's the way it's described. And living believers are caught up to meet him, and then we go to prepared places. Remember Jesus in John 14 says, Don't panic. Keep on believing in God. Keep on believing in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, a dwelling place in my Father's house in heaven, I'll come again and receive you unto myself in the prepared dwelling places. And that's the rapture. That's not the second advent. So the rapture is the imminent appearing of Christ in the air to resurrect church-age believers. All church-age believers will be resurrected at that moment, including the generation of church-age believers who are alive on earth when he comes in the rapture, in the parousia. This event will, in fact, initiate the end times, or T-E-O-T-A, which is our acronym for the end of the age, and that's the expression the Lord Jesus uses in Matthew 24 and 25 for the tribulation, second advent, and the inauguration of the millennial kingdom. Now, three key truths we've learned from the last couple of weeks as we've been studying 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 18 and thinking about the rapture event. First, there are two key rapture passages in the New Testament. I think just about everybody on uh, the theological spectrum would say 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, and 1 Corinthians 51-58. Those two passages are the major passages that talk about the rapture event. Now, as I've said, many Christians believe the rapture and the second advent are the same thing, two aspects of the same thing. In fact, that's something we talked about in detail last week with our chart, and we contrasted those, and I tried to make a case that, in fact, the rapture and the second advent are two separate things. Rapture is up and away. Second advent is down and stay. Rapture is before the tribulation. Second advent ends the tribulation, and so on. If you want those details, you can listen to last week's uh, study. But the two key rapture passages, even if you think the rapture and the second advent are really the same thing as Christ is coming down for the second advent, Believers are caught up, meet him in the air, and come right back down with him. That's one way uh, those truths are interpreted. I disagree with that respectfully. But everybody, uh, even those who don't distinguish between the rapture and the second advent as two distinct events, would tell you, yeah, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, and 1 Corinthians 15, 51-58 are talking about the catching up and our bodies being changed and meeting with Christ and so those are the two major passages. But on the handout that uh, we had this week, I listed a whole plethora of other passages. John 14, of course, First Thess 1, 9, and 10. At the very beginning, uh, we're not destined for the wrath of the tribulation, but for rescue from uh, the tribulation by the rapture event through Jesus Christ. We just read First Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11, which basically says the same thing as 1 Thess 1, 9 and 10. Uh, Revelation 4, 1 has a door open in heaven and John the apostle being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And you really see, I believe, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, the scene in heaven 
after the rapture, just before the tribulation breaks out on earth. Um, there are other passages, but tonight, for strategic use of our time, I want us to focus just on uh, Titus 2, 13 and 14. And I put 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14, because those are the two verses that deal kind of directly with the rapture. But really, the, the unit of thought is verses 11 through 14. So let me read that whole unit of thought, and then we'll talk about how that passage describes the rapture and also strongly affirms the deity of Christ. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So that means that all males go to heaven and no females go to heaven, right? Now, the word men there, it refers to people in a generic sense, men and women, boys and girls, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, of all countries and colors who believe. Now, it almost sounds like he's saying the grace of God has appeared kind of unilaterally, bringing salvation universally to everyone. There is a school of thought called universalism that says that God's too kind to send anybody to eternal punishment, including Adolf Hitler and the worst racists uh, and uh, mass murderers you can think of. And I wouldn't think about that too much but because uh, it can really, it's a downer. But uh, the grace of God has appeared to bring salvation to all people. The word all, every, those kind of words in every language can refer to all without any exception, 100% of the particular set you're talking about. Or it can mean all without any major distinction, all kinds of. He knows all there is to know about American history. You might talk about a professor. He doesn't know every single fact, but he knows all kinds of things. He's been all over the world. She's been all over the world. She's been all over the world, all, many continents, many different countries, but not every single square inch. Uh, scripture, let me give you some examples. Scripture says that uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's 100%. That's all without exception. That includes you, and it certainly includes me. However, in another place, Paul says the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. That's not all without any exception. There are some things, there are a lot of things that happen in life that are evil that have nothing to do with desire for financial gain. But if you are motivated by desire for financial gain, you're capable of almost anything. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You think of most of the major vices in our country, you know, from prostitution to illegal drug sales and all kinds of things. Somebody's making a lot of money on those things. That's why it's out there. Uh, if there was no profit, uh, financial profit, people wouldn't wouldn't sell it, wouldn't do it. But uh, the love of money's root of all evil doesn't mean that. Every single 100% of all the acts of evil of all time have always been motivated by love of money. That's all without distinction. That's what you've got here in Titus 2.11. The grace of God has appeared, brings salvation to all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ. Slave and free in that culture, they actually had slaves, which in most cases was more like indentured servitude than antebellum slavery which is one of the worst types, if if not the worst type in history, uh, in my opinion. Based on skin color, hey, 
There's only one race in the world of human beings, the human race. And if some of us don't start moving, we're going to finish in last place. Different phenotypes, not any different genotype. Uh, grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all kinds of people, instructing us who have through faith received salvation in Christ as Christians to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, in the church age in which we're living in, looking for, motivated, both convicted and comforted, as we look for the blessed hope, that's a reference to the rapture event, and, and here is not a plus sign. If I say that Michael and Amanda Birch are going to teach junior church, that means Michael, that's one person, plus Amanda, she's a separate person, that's two people. And quite often is a plus sign in uh, modern English. But it can be an equals mark. And when you do that in New Testament Greek, that's called an ascensive chi. The word chi is the word that means and. And here, that's an equals mark. We're supposed to be anticipating, comforted, and convicted by the fact that at any moment, the rapture, the imminent coming of Christ in the air to resurrect his church could happen. So we are to be looking forward to and comforted and convicted and motivated by the anticipation of the blessed hope that is, to say, the appearing of the glory of Christ. So that's the first ascensive chi in verse 13. But there's a second one. What's ascensive chi? Oh, my goodness. That's when and is an equals mark, not a plus sign, when the and connects two different ways of describing one thing. So we're supposed to be motivated and comforted and convicted by looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Uh, go back to verse 13. And let me just say this in my last couple of minutes here. The deity of Christ is a non-negotiable fundamental of the biblical apostolic Christian faith. And although there was a famous church council in 325 A.D. called the Council of Nicaea, where Christians from all over the Mediterranean basin got together and hammered out a very precise theological definition of the deity of Christ and strongly affirmed the deity of Christ, the Council of Nicaea didn't invent the deity of Christ any more than Galileo or Newton invented gravity. All they did was study it and try to describe it very precisely. That's what these theological councils did in the early church. The thing you're going to hear on Discovery Channel is nobody believed in the deity of Christ, not even Christ himself, until 325 when they had a meeting and they voted it in. That's not what happened. And in fact, this passage here is a very powerful affirmation of that uh, here in the first century as Paul writes the book of Titus and roughly... Uh, 65 A.D., give or take a couple of years, right? Now, typically when I tell you that it's important that Christians be able to defend biblically the deity of Christ, I say, how are you going to remember some main passages on this thing? I always like to say, well, just remember Jesus Christ 1-2, J.C. 1-2, J. 
1 is John 1. C2 is Colossians 2. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, a title for Christ in that context, and the Word was with God the Father, and the Word was God, was deity. He's a different person from God the Father, but he's full deity. He has all the same characteristics, the the same essence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit uh, in his person. So that's a good one, John 1. Colossians 2 says, In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So we're talking about the incarnate Jesus Christ, the God-man, Savior, is fully man and fully God. Now sometimes people say, well, that's good to remember John 1 and Colossians 2 to biblically defend the deity of Christ, but that's John and Paul talking. That's not Jesus talking. He never thought he was God. Uh, Yeah, he did. And to defend that, I would say, imagine the Lord Jesus holding up an 8 by 10 glossy photograph of himself, and that reminds you of John 8 and John 10. In John 8, Jesus says in public uh, in Jerusalem that before Abraham was, I am. And I am, uh, ego eimi in the Greek, is a reference to the term Yahweh, and Yahweh, the covenant name for God, in fact, is a form of the uh, the verb uh, to be, uh, I am. And uh, the people in Jerusalem, the leaders who heard him say that before Abraham was in 2000 BC, I am, I always have existed, I'm the eternal I am, they pick up stones to stone him because they believe he's being uh, blasphemous because he's claiming to be God in human form. So that's one place he clearly claims it. In John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. And he uses not the articular one in the original Greek. He doesn't say, I and the Father are one and the same person. He says, I and the Father are, he uses the anarthrous uh, use of the word one. We're one and the same thing. We have the same essence, the same character. Okay, So those are the basic passages I always try to get people to remember. But another great one is found here in Titus 2.13. As he talks about the rapture, he says the rapture is the appearing of the glory of our great God, that is our Savior Jesus Christ. The and there, based on the grammar in the original language, is a slam dunk. This is the only way you could interpret this. God and Savior refer to the same person, and God and Savior in this context is Christ Jesus. It's a very powerful a passage affirming the deity of Christ. Now you can say, well, Paul was just wrong, but you can't say Paul was not affirming the deity of Christ here. That's clearly what he was doing. That's critically important. And that'd be a good passage to know because a lot of the groups that come to your door on Saturday trying to sell you their magazine and get you into a Bible study may not have dealt so much, may not have been given programmatic answers to how they're going to explain away Titus 2.13, because it's not mentioned as much as, as, say, John 1 or Colossians 2. Uh, All the groups that deny the deed of Christ who are going door to door have been given pat answers for John 1 and Colossians 2, because those are the first ones that will come up typically in a a discussion. But maybe not so much so for Titus 2. Now, I'm not saying they don't have an answer to explain it away. They can explain it all away. But uh, they're still wrong. But here, I'm just telling you this is a very strong uh, uh, affirmation of the deity of Christ just based on the grammar 
of the original language. Now we're working off an English translation, which is no problem. But uh, just so you'll know, that's really a good passage, not just on the rapture, but on the deity of Christ. Okay, Lord willing, next Wednesday, what I want to do is survey briefly this entire list of passages, including Titus 2, 13, 14, that deal with, talk about, refer to, apply the doctrine of the rapture so that you're going to realize, yeah, there are two major passages on the rapture in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 and 1 Corinthians 15, 51-58, but there are a plethora of other statements, not just two statements that maybe we're misinterpreting. Uh, there's a lot of biblical data that affirms the reality of the uh, imminent coming of Christ. And you might say, well, golly, you know, if, if it's one thing for this thing to be imminent, and I believe it's going to happen at some point, and it'll happen without warning, but wasn't that a little misleading for God uh, to give us a New Testament that says this thing's imminent, knowing in his mind it wouldn't happen for at least 2,000 years, because we're living roughly 2,000 years after the New Testament? And I would say, no, I don't think that is uh, a problem, because we're supposed to be living like that anyway, because... As far as our mortality is concerned, you don't know if you've got 20 more years or 20 more minutes. I mean, you could drop dead of an aneurysm in your brain or your heart, in your brain right now, or your heart could blow up. There's a, a, a problem in an artery, uh, a coronary artery, that's called the widow maker uh, because it has, there's no symptoms to it, but it can close off your uh, blood flow to your heart and you die just in a quick second. And so the fact that we're all uh, imminently one heartbeat away from being face-to-face with the Lord just in our mortality uh, is underscored and consistent with God saying, this is imminent, could happen any minute, be looking for it because it is going to happen for sure. Uh, I think you've got to understand that dynamic with this other and I think it, it makes a lot of sense. So it's something we ought to be really excited about, looking forward to. It ought to convict us to do our best, even on business trips, even on prom night as believers. But uh, that's what I got for you tonight, okay? So uh, Lord willing, next week we'll come back and survey a lot of these passages. And until then, uh, God bless and see you down the road.